The green economy strategy, the green growth strategy, basically says that uh, Ethiopia aims to industrialize and grow the economy, but not at the cost of uh, the environment and climate change. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we are bringing you three special episodes as part of our project on energy transition strategies. This project attempted to answer the question, can emerging economies grow while reducing their greenhouse gas emissions? To do that, we looked at three different case studies, Vietnam, Ethiopia, and the Indian state of Gujarat. Each offered a different decarbonization pathway in response to their specific economic, social, and energy needs. Over the past 15 months, through research and workshops, we have engaged with experts with regional expertise to help understand the complexities around each of their pathways. Our third and final podcast of the series takes us to Ethiopia. Our guest is Esaron Narasimhan. Esaron is a research fellow at the Climate Policy Lab at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He focuses on innovation and industrial policy, looking at clean energy technologies. I'll turn it over to Nikos and Lachlan now to get that conversation started. Thank you for joining us, Eswaran. Let me start from the top and ask you, how should we think about Ethiopia in the context of climate change and low carbon development? Why is this an important place for people who are not necessarily focused on Ethiopia to pay attention to? Thank you, uh, Nikos. Uh, so Ethiopia is uh, important in the context of climate change, uh, particularly as a developing country and also as uh, a potential example uh, for the rest of the African countries to follow. Um, so uh, the reason why it has to be Ethiopia and not another country is that Ethiopia is uh, the first country to have an economy-wide strategy uh, called the Climate Resilient Green Economy Strategy to uh, pursue carbon neutral economic growth and achieve uh, middle income status by 2025. And uh, that's a very ambitious goal, uh, especially uh, for a country uh, that, that still uh, has a per capita income of uh, just shy of $1,000 a year. And uh, it would be interesting for everyone uh, to understand how uh, they are planning to uh, achieve uh, their goal of carbon neutral growth and middle income status and what challenges uh, they will face and what opportunities they have uh, in order to uh, make that happen. And uh, the other uh, important point that I would like to uh, bring up is uh, the issue of uh, infrastructure lock-in. Uh, so, um, a lot of these developing countries are yet to build infrastructure, um, whether it's uh, transport infrastructure, electricity infrastructure, uh, or anything. Uh, and uh, this is a huge opportunity uh, for uh, anyone interested in climate change and green transitions to make sure that anything that gets built uh, is uh, as low carbon as possible. And Ethiopia being a country with a nationwide strategy, uh, is uh, the right place to partner and collaborate with uh, and uh, to you know, showcase as an example for other countries to follow. 
Can I ask you maybe for our listeners who may not be familiar with this strategy, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about where that strategy came from, how it was articulated, just kind of like big picture so that we can maybe ground the conversation for those uh, who may not be as familiar with Ethiopia? Right, yeah, so the Climate Resilient Green Economy Strategy was introduced uh, in uh, 2011 under uh, the former Prime Minister, Mela Zanavi. Uh, and the former Prime Minister was quite active uh, even uh, in the Copenhagen Climate Summit. And uh, he saw this as an enormous opportunity, uh, not just to pursue uh, carbon neutral growth uh, for the country, but also uh, as a means to uh, attract investment into the country. And uh, he was smart enough to see that uh, investments flowing through international donors or bilateral export-import banks uh, were not just uh, the traditional development investments, uh, but were slowly uh, becoming low-carbon investments as well. Uh, for example, the World Bank uh, stopped funding coal power projects, uh, except in situations where it deems it as absolutely necessary. So we can take that as an example. Uh, in that case, if you would still want World Bank to fund uh, infrastructure and development projects in your country, uh, it's smart uh, to actually uh, make sure that you're act uh, investing in low carbon infrastructure. So uh, the climate resilient green economy strategy basically uh, has two parts to it. One is a green economy strategy, which uh, follows the principles of green growth uh, and a climate resilience strategy where uh, Ethiopia plans to afforest or reforest a lot of uh, its land that has been deforested in uh, the past century and uh, use that as a means uh, to sequester carbon. Uh, so they have like a very well-developed two-pronged strategy and uh, it was actually developed by international consultants. Uh, I think it was uh, McKinsey that uh, first uh, uh, drafted the Climate Resilient Green Economy Strategy for the country. So uh, after that, Ethiopia, with the change in the government and uh, the incoming new prime minister, continued uh, the work uh, of the previous government and uh, implemented institutional structures to make sure uh, that every ministry in the country took a, did a stock take of uh, estimated carbon emissions or the carbon footprint of their projects uh, and policies and reported it up to the uh, Environment Ministry, uh, which is now uh, the Environment Commission, Environment, Forest and Climate Change Commission. So they have built that institutional structure and the Global Green Growth Institute, GGGI, was instrumental uh, in uh, making uh, sure that uh, the government was able to build a good institutional structure to roll up uh, data uh, every year. Uh, and that is crucial because that's the data that you can then use uh, to show achievements, to show progress, and then attract more finance. The other thing that the government did was to implement a, a climate resilient green economy facility, CRGE facility under Ministry of Finance to attract investments. So that is exclusively a facility to attract investments. And then those investments are then uh, dispersed to different projects in different ministries. 
and uh, they have an international financial institutions directorate under ministry of finance and they have like a very traditional set of uh, departments to funnel uh, the money uh, that flows through the crg facility thank you i'd like to um dig into a little bit particularly the green economy prong that you mentioned so you said that this side of the crg adheres to what you call the principles of green growth so first I'd, I'd like you to sort of explain a little bit more what what that means but then specifically how does that apply, apply to to ethiopia and this notion of of green industrialization so how is the crge not just working in concert with growth and development but actually using decarbonization as a, as a set of policies to to facilitate and and accelerate that development green growth by definition basically assumes that economic growth can continue in a low carbon way, uh, right? So there are uh, different schools of thought. There is one school of thought that stems from ecological economics, which basically says that uh, we cannot afford to uh, grow at a rate at which nature cannot uh, replenish itself, or we cannot afford to extract resources from nature at the rate at which nature cannot replenish itself, right? And then uh, there is uh, the traditional uh, green growth uh, definition coming from the environmental economics uh, worldview, which believes that uh, environmental damage is a negative externality. And uh, all that you'll have to do is to price it uh, appropriately, either through direct pricing policies like carbon pricing or through other uh, regulatory policies to make sure that whatever development uh, that you undertake has the least amount of impact on the environment, both in terms of carbon dioxide emissions and also uh, other environmental pollution. So uh, the green economy strategy, the green growth strategy basically says that uh, Ethiopia aims to industrialize and grow the economy, but not at the cost of uh, the environment and climate change. So what we need to understand here is uh, that they're not saying that they are not going to extract resources at all. Uh, they're not saying that they're not going to invest in fossil fuels, but they're saying that overall, uh, they, uh, their growth will be carbon neutral. So uh, if they are industrializing and they're building cement factories and steel uh, plants uh, to power their uh, infrastructure development, they hope that that would be compensated uh, by the climate resilient resilience strategy which would increase increase their forest cover uh, footprint and sequester carbon on the other side but but they also uh, plan to make sure that uh, the heavy industry that they build is as uh, green and energy efficient as possible so given that context uh, green industrialization in Ethiopia, uh, so far, um, has focused mostly on light industries. Uh, uh, so uh, the government's main policy is to build eco-industrial parks, where they claim that the industrial parks are powered by renewables, which is true. Uh, Ethiopia is like 99% hydro and renew other renewables. And then uh, the production process uh, and waste handling of coming in these coming out of these industrial parks uh, follow the zero waste uh, principles, right? So uh, that's the first step that they've taken. Uh, but they have a long way to go 
because that only ensures that they reduce their footprint to some extent, but it doesn't uh, bring in energy efficiency, for example. Uh, for example, the um, Ethiopian Energy Authority does not have any energy efficiency standards except for injera cookers or basic electric motors. So what that means is uh, that any industry that's being set up in Ethiopia by either by a foreign investor or domestic investor uh, can bring in the uh, most antiquated equipment uh, to conduct business and produce products. So uh, that's, uh, that's, that's an area that uh, Ethiopia will definitely have to concentrate uh, going into the future. Uh, the other areas uh, would be uh, vehicle emission standards uh, because Ethiopia currently has absolutely like no fuel standards or uh, vehicle pollution standards. So, uh, so there's a lot more to be done, uh, but they've started out with uh, this basic policy of building eco parks uh, to house industries uh, that will not produce uh, waste, or at least to make sure that the waste that they produce will be recycled. Thank you. Um, and so in your paper, you looked specifically at the electricity sector and, and reforms there. And on the one hand, Ethiopia obviously has it pretty easy when it comes to decarbonizing the electricity sector with the vast majority of uh, power generation coming from hydro facilities. But as you say, um, there is more capacity additions in, in wind and solar, and a lot of that comes uh, as a result of these reforms. So I was wondering if you could just step us through those reforms, what they've looked like, and, and sort of what elements of, of that you see as being particularly successful so far. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, one thing to remember um, about Ethiopia's electricity sector is that it's dominated by hydropower. It's technically, technically considered as uh, a renewable source, but provided that the hydropower source will be stable forever. But that's not the case. Uh, with climate change, there is huge variability in monsoons, uh, rainfall patterns, and hydropower is quickly becoming unreliable. And Ethiopia under, understood that they, they, because they were facing severe power shortages uh, during the uh, dry seasons with uh, extremely variable power output. So that's when they decided that they'll have to uh, diversify. Uh, so uh, this was early 2011, 12 uh, timeframe when the entire electricity sector was a monopoly and all the investments in electricity was under a direct public ownership uh, regime. So uh, Ethiopia invested in a couple of uh, geothermal experimental geothermal projects uh, and also uh, contracted out like build, operate and transfer projects uh, to uh, a French wind company, uh, a Chinese uh, wind company, uh, and they built a few wind farms, namely like Adama uh, 1 and Adama Phase 2 wind farms. And, uh, but they definitely could not scale up the uh, source of non-hydro renewable uh, because uh, all of the debt was owned by the Ethiopian government. And the Ethiopian government being cash trapped, it was just becoming impossible for them to, uh, you know, continue uh, uh, bearing the burdensome debt uh, from electricity sector investments. So the reforms that they undertook subsequently was not necessarily for the sake of climate change or integrating more renewables. It was more like a happy coincidence that they had to do these reforms uh, in order to uh, make sure that the electricity sector 
can expand uh, and generate more power to uh, power their industrialization ambitions. So they unbundled the electricity sector uh, into one company for generation and transmission and another company for uh, distribution. Both are still government owned. And then they went to this regime where they signed independent power purchase agreements uh, with directly with uh, specific investors in geothermal and wind uh, particularly. And then finally in 2018, uh, they undertook two major reforms. One is a tariff reform. Uh, one of the biggest problems for Ethiopia was that their tariff was at around like uh, three cents a kilowatt of a kilowatt hour, uh, while the cost recovery was at around like seven cents. So it was impossible for any private sector investor to actually come and build a power plant, be it renewable or anything. So uh, they undertook tariff reforms uh, to uh, achieve cost recovery, and they also introduced this new law. Uh, called the Public-Private Partnership Law, which allows private investments in sectors, including power sector. So, and they created a legal framework around it. They created a Public-Private Partnership Unit under Ministry of Finance, and they are now partnering with the World Bank and IFC uh, through the IFC Scaling Solar Program and the World Bank Renewable Energy Guarantees Program to create a competitive auctions policy uh, to allow independent power producers from around the world uh, to actually bid for uh, solar and wind projects uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, but the key important element needed uh, to bring uh, increase investors' confidence and reduce the risk premium for these projects, financial risk premium for these projects, is the legal framework uh, that they didn't have until 2018. The framework is still not perfect. Uh, the Ethiopian Electric Power has tried to renege on a couple of power purchase agreements that they signed with uh, a solar uh, uh, independent power producer. And uh, those are things that they have to make sure it doesn't happen in the future. Like if it continues to happen uh, the way uh, it, it, it has happened uh, in the recent past, then that would be uh, very difficult for them to progress further, yeah. Can I ask you one peculiarity from an international experience is you, you talked about sort of the desire to diversify from hydro and to broaden the power supply base. Ethiopia has not gone towards fossil fuels though. It hasn't gone to coal, it hasn't gone to natural gas. And I'm wondering, is there an obvious reason why that is? I mean, it's, it's commendable. Um, but it really stands out relative to the international experience. Uh, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why do you, why you think that is. It's partly because they do not have, I, I wouldn't say they do not have coal or natural gas. They do have some coal and some natural gas, but they have much more geothermal and hydropower. Uh, and uh, thanks to the CRG strategy that uh, they implemented in 2011, um, they, uh, saw that this was uh, you know, a natural comp comparative advantage that they have and that they could exploit uh, to uh, expand their electricity uh, footprint. So, I mean, there is still a possibility uh, for them to shift uh, towards coal or natural gas, but then because they have plenty of renewable resources and also because technological costs have come down significantly for solar and wind, and quickly coming down for geothermal. Uh, 
uh, in, in the future, uh, they see that uh, it's better uh, to, um, you know, expand the electricity sector with renewables. Can I ask you one more question? You, you said a couple of things that were very interesting on vehicle fuel efficiency standards and industry. I'm trying to reconcile in my head the enormous ambition of the overarching strategy with the, one could call it glaring omission of sort of the low hanging fruit of instituting fuel economy standards around sort of transportation and industry. And I guess the question I'm trying to think about is how much of this is just ambition versus reality and, and, and or how much of that is, you know, we'll get there where, where it, it takes time to really flesh out what this policy looks like. Um, and is it really the case that we could say that the power sector is still in much better footing than industry and, and transportation? So maybe talking to us a little bit about the relative progress of these different sectors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think in terms of the industrial energy efficiency, for example, the electric motors and efficiency standards for other equipment, um, they, they are uh, significantly lagging behind. But I think it's also strategic on their part not to bring those standards uh, uh, because uh, their claim is that electricity is powered by renewables anyway. Um, and if industrial machines are inefficient, uh, might as well be inefficient because the source of electricity is almost carbon neutral, right? So it's not like they have to implement these standards uh, immediately. It is strategic uh, in the long term for them to do so because uh, they can compete with other world players in whatever sector they enter in. They can compete with other competitors, global competitors, in terms of price and scale with be better efficient machines, right? Uh, but in the short term, it's uh, extremely difficult for them uh, to implement these standards and expect foreign investments to come in uh, because uh, Ethiopia uh, is severely cash-strapped and they don't even allow more than a certain amount of bill to be taken out of their country, right? So that's how cash-strapped they are. So they have to prioritize where to use that money. If they were to implement these high uh, energy efficiency standards uh, for industry, it would, uh, on one side, discourage foreign investors to come in, uh, because foreign investors are coming into Ethiopia for two reasons. One is uh, cheap labor, because Ethiopia does not even have a minimum wage law. Uh, and uh, a, a, a low wage worker uh, in a textile factory is probably paid like 20 to $25 a month. Uh, and uh, the second reason they come for is uh, the lack of uh, burdensome uh, regulations that in, in, in their viewpoint, uh, in their business viewpoint. So they're, they're leaving Bangladesh, like Bangladesh, companies from Bangladesh and India are actually setting up shop in Ethiopia. And then you can imagine the difference in uh, standards uh, between uh, these countries. So it may be strategic uh, that they're not in a hurry to uh, improve industrial energy efficiency standards uh, because their electricity input is clean anyway. Uh, but it would be strategic in the long term for them to do that. Uh, the second is uh, vehicle efficiency standards. So that's a completely different ballgame. 
Uh, that's exclusively because uh, they are cash trapped and they have like no money to increase their imports any further. Uh, and their local population is uh, having increasing appetite for imported goods. So um, uh, the uh, vehicle efficiency standards, for example, um, if they were to uh, set like high uh, vehicle efficiency standards, um, pretty much 100% of uh, the vehicles uh, running in Ethiopia will be uh, imported. Uh, and that will definitely have a huge issue uh, in the trade balance. Uh, and the lack of uh, vehicle efficiency standards is hurting them in terms of severe uh, air pollution. I could feel it when I was in Addis. And uh, they have even uh, uh, imposed some restrictions that are increasing the value of uh, terribly old and inefficient vehicles. Um, so basically, it's hurting uh, the customers at the end of the day because they're paying two to three times the price to buy uh, an early 2000 uh, Toyota or something uh, from overseas rather than buy a relatively newer or like a brand new Toyota at a lower price. So there is a lot going on in the uh, transportation sector that uh, they're yet to uh, address when it comes to reducing uh, both carbon footprint and uh, air pollutants, uh, air pollutant emissions. Thank you for that. We've talked about sort of the developing economy status of a country. And so I think it we would be remiss if we didn't talk about energy and electricity access. Um, and so I was wondering if you could give us a sense of the status update, what the progress has been, what the agenda is going forward, uh, obviously still uh, a big part of the country isn't necessarily connected to the main grid, doesn't have good reliable access to electricity. So I was wondering if you could walk us through that. Right, so under their national electricity plan, they uh, aim to connect like 65% of the country with grid access and the rest 35% of the country with um, decentralized or off-grid solutions, primarily because Ethio uh, rural Ethiopia is quite sparsely populated, especially the mountainous uh, hilly regions. And uh, they are partnering with the World Bank uh, on implementing uh, uh, mini grids uh, across these uh, rural areas where there is no access to electricity or even an electricity pole uh, coming in within a few kilometers of their village. And uh, currently they have only like 70% of the country has no access. About 44% of the country uh, households have some kind of access uh, and about only 30% has grid access right now. Uh, so it, it's, it's a huge leap uh, under their national electricity plan to uh, move towards universal access. Uh, within the next decade. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, rightfully, uh, that's going to be the biggest focus for them. So they, they, they're trying to address like two big challenges. One is improving the electricity grid uh, for industrialization. Another is expanding grid and other decentralized solutions for access. And uh, these two are like completely different 
ball games and uh, they've been heavily partnering with china uh, building industrial parks and recently signing a contract uh, pretty much giving ownership uh, to china uh, to own an entire industrial electricity grid corridor uh, so it's going to be a transmission grid corridor built exclusively for industries so that that clearly says that they uh, they look at these two as like two different strategies um, and on the access side they're partnering with international institutions like the world bank and other uh, you know bilateral donors who are interested in uh, access uh, the world bank recently completed a mini grid pilot uh, where they are trying to experiment business models to uh, make uh, mini grid solutions viable the ethiopian electric utility uh, is the one that's uh, responsible for decentralized solutions and uh, they uh, have the ambition to scale up the world bank program once they know uh, the viability of uh, the solution thank you sir <clears throat> One thing that strikes me about this conversation is we sort of started with these very high-minded ideas of green growth and the climate resilient green economy. And then as soon as we started talking about the actual sectors um, that, that comprise a you know, decarbonized uh, green economy, we no longer talked about those so much, right? Like the CRGE didn't, hasn't come up at all since, and rather it seems like the politics within these sectors is much more about kind of the pragmatic uh, real solutions. And so I'm just interested in how much do you see the CRGE um, influencing uh, you know, policy decisions at the sort of sectoral level and vice versa? Are these sort of bottom-up pragmatic approaches influencing the kind of broader high-level decisions around uh, Ethiopia's you know, green economy ambitions? Although under the Ethiopian constitution, uh, their provinces have quite a bit of you know, power, they have different, they have power sharing agreements based on uh, ethnicity uh, in the parliament. It's heavily centralized when it comes to policy. Um, most of the policy is made at the central level by the uh, coalition uh, uh, that uh, governs right now, and then uh, implemented um, at the regional level. So it's definitely not bottom up. Um, but um, you're right in saying that the CRGE strategy, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, sits at the top and then everything else that's happening uh, below that uh, seems quite disconnected uh, from it. That's very true because they are blessed with renewable resources. Uh, the CRGE strategy automatically uh, uh, they, they're adhering to the CRGE principles automatically by pursuing um, renewable energy projects uh, in the electricity sector. Um, but if you look at the industrial sector, they're actually not adhering to the CRGE principles uh, because there are so many other economic constraints that they're facing. Uh, so their most important goal is to attract foreign investments uh, into the industrial parks develop their leather sector, uh, you know, textile sector, their uh, horticulture, uh, agroforestry sectors, uh, rather than uh, look at energy efficiency uh, of their production, uh, etc. 
in, in principle, they did implement and follow up on the CRG strategy in the industry sector by implementing eco-industrial parks. Uh, but I still think that the eco part of eco-industrial parks is very flaky. It's um, like in my field work and my interviews, I found that uh, although they uh, want all of their industrial parks to be eco-industrial parks, only like a couple of them are actually zero waste uh, handling eco-industrial parks. Uh, so uh, the eco part is actually not given any importance. And uh, in my interviews with the Ethiopian Investment Commission, uh, which basically is responsible for bringing foreign investments and then locating those industries in the industrial parks. And then the industrial parks are administered by this separate agency called the Industrial Parks Development Corporation, right? So in my interviews with all these people, there were a, a few who didn't even know about CRG strategy, for example, right? Uh, so I asked them if they had strategy to market themselves as this um, um, a country that's trying to pursue low carbon uh, growth pathways and market themselves to attract sustainable textiles, sustainable leather uh, companies, because globally that's becoming a trend and naturally a lot of big companies would be interested in uh, manufacturing sustainable textiles somewhere in the globe, right? And I asked them if they promoted themselves as uh, a destination for these investors to come and set up sustainable textile production facilities. But no, like they said, we don't want to shy away investors. Uh, our first goal is to bring in investments. And um, so that, that clearly uh, showed me uh, like their emphasis is uh, development. Uh, and uh, if any of the measures naturally fit in with the CRG strategy, it comes along. Uh, but uh, otherwise, uh, their focus is development, and probably, you know, rightfully so, considering that they are uh, they they were an LDC uh, and they are just uh, starting to industrialize, uh, and it's not possible for them to undertake such an ambitious step uh, right from the get go. But it also, on the other hand, feels uh, um, a little bit uh, dishonest uh, to have strategy and claim to the world that everything that they are doing is carbon neutral right so uh, so there is a disconnect um, when it comes to the uh, industrialization part but they have taken a few steps which we should not discount considering uh, the fact that they are just an early industrializer perhaps one final question you know in these conversations we like to sort of finish with a little bit of optimism and, and sort of uh, looking forward um, for Ethiopia and the various case studies that we've pursued as a part of this this project. So just wanted to ask you, what makes you optimistic about Ethiopia's low carbon uh, development trajectory and sort of what lessons do you expect other developing countries and even, uh, you know, if, if relevant developed countries will be able to learn from that, that experience going forward? So the first thing that makes me optimistic is that they're thinking about it. First of all, like uh, from a development perspective, I don't even know uh, if it's fair to impose uh, that requirement on uh, least developed countries and developing countries at the early stage of industrialization that they have to be carbon neutral, right? 
it's strategic uh, from a climate change perspective, but because any new infrastructure that gets built doesn't get locked into fossil fuel intensive trajectory. Uh, but from a moral standpoint, uh, I'm not sure if the, uh, the Western world and the uh, emerging economies that are, you know, responsible for uh, today's uh, burden of carbon emissions uh, can actually uh, impose that requirement on countries like Ethiopia. Uh, but the fact that they're thinking about it without uh, any pressure, external pressure, itself makes uh, me like really optimistic uh, because they have that vision. Uh, whether, whether they uh, introduced the CRG strategy for attracting more investments or not, uh, it's a separate discussion altogether, but they had the uh, resolve to uh, put that on the table and make a commitment to uh, the rest of the world that uh, they are going to try uh, to pursue carbon neutral uh, economic growth pathway. And if they are able to make that happen with the help of uh, you know, international funding and financial, not just financial assistance, but also loans at, at a discounted rate uh, for low carbon investments, etc., then uh, the rest of the countries at a similar position like Ethiopia can uh, also implement uh, the same similar uh, strategy to attract investments into their country to pursue uh, carbon neutral growth. So that's what makes me optimistic about it. Like the things that we discussed, you know, probably makes it feel like uh, not much is being done uh, in reality, and uh, there and the fact that there there are a lot of other challenges uh, for them for Ethiopia as a country, but progress is like always slow uh, and uh, what what remains true is that there is a strategy and a commitment and we can hold them to that commitment and nudge uh, we i mean like people involved in uh, climate change and green transitions around the world uh, can hold them to that commitment and nudge them and encourage them to go through that pathway and show uh, how it can be done uh, for the other countries in a similar position. Well, thank you, Ezra. And I think that's a, that's a really nice note to, to end on, actually, not just because it, um, it gives us sort of an optimistic lens through which to look at Ethiopia, but I think all three of our case studies really reflect that, that point you make, that in each of these sectors, you know, across three case studies, four sectors per case study, we've been able to find examples of success that sort of show the ways in which different countries are, are pursuing decarbonization for their own interests. None of these cases, none of these policies are examples where they've been forced to do it, as you say, but rather because they really see it in their own sort of um, self-interest and, and can, uh, coherent with their development goals. So I would encourage our listeners to go and you know visit our project website, read Esperan's paper and, and all the other white papers that we've put together for the three case studies, if they're interested in reading about this further. But you know, I think this was a really great conversation and, and I learned even more about Ethiopia today. So uh, thank you, Ezran, for, for taking the time and um, look forward to talking again in the future. Sure, yeah. Thank you so much, Nikos and uh, Lachlan. Thanks to Ezran for joining Nikos and Lachlan today and for participating in our Energy Transition Strategies workshops. You can find out more about the project and all of the related papers, reports, and podcasts on our website. 
As always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us at CSIS.org or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening.